Episode 62, When in the Course of Human Events. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Okay, last episode, I talked about how the Declaration of Independence came to be drafted, and I decided that it was really such an important document that I needed to take an extra episode to explain some of the important ideas within the document and how they shaped our modern world. And I should start by warning you that this episode is a good bit longer than most in this podcast. The Declaration itself is just 1,300 words, but there are so many good and important ideas in it that it's going to take a little while to unpack it all. And I suggest also that if you can, while you listen, you have a copy of the Declaration of Independence open to read as we go. So far in this podcast, it's been pretty rare that I devoted an entire episode to just one person. That's happened like eight times so far. So this is going to be a first for me. I'm devoting two episodes to one document. But like I said, I think you can make the case that the Declaration of Independence is the most important document that humans have ever written. It's certainly in the running. But why? Why is it so important? What is it about this document that makes it worthy of considering as one of the most important collections of ideas in all of history? On the one hand, it's because of what the Founding Fathers were doing in publishing the Declaration of Independence. And on the other hand, it's because of the actual ideas that it contains. Both are important. Each of the 13 British colonies had their own legislative body, and each colony had elected the people in those legislatures, although some also had governors that were appointed by the king back in Great Britain. But the colonists felt, and rightly so, that their elected legislatures were the only group that ought to be able to pass laws that affected that particular colony. To have the king or parliament make decrees, like the rule that private people in the colonies had to submit to having soldiers quartered in their homes, it seemed like a huge abuse of their rights. So, for all of the colonies to come together with duly elected representatives to a joint colonial congress, and for that group to vote to no longer be part of the government that had founded the colonies, that was a huge deal. Those assembled delegates were saying in the Declaration of Independence to the king, to the parliament, and to the world, you are no longer our government. We together are choosing to make a new government for ourselves. And the Declaration of Independence, besides declaring independence, is also a list of reasons why the colonies think they have the right to cast off the British government that had founded them and become independent. So on the one hand, what the Founding Fathers are doing is saying, we've chosen to no longer be part of your empire, and we are willing to fight, and even perhaps die, to be our own country. That action, even not including the incredible ideas that we find in the Declaration of Independence, that action is important in and of itself. At this point in history, in 1776, this has never really been done before, not like this. Countries have fought for independence from other conquering countries. We see this going all the way back to the beginning of recorded history, but never before had a subset of a country, had a group of duly elected representatives come together 
and vote together to just become their own country and then declare, hey, we're independent and here's why. It's hard to overstate how important this was and how important this principle is. The idea is that if an area and its people have their duly elected leaders come together in a legitimate representative assembly, that that group has the right to say, the area that we represent, the people we represent, it is now independent from the government that we used to be a part of. That's the main principle behind the Declaration of Independence. The document then goes on to list the reasons that legitimize their claim to this right. But the idea is still that a region has the right to elect people and declare itself independent of the government above it, even if that parent government disagrees and doesn't like it or allow it. But the subregion has the right. So Texas, following this logic, has the right to elect a representative assembly and for that assembly to declare Texas independent of the current government of the United States. And I'm kind of hoping that happens soon. Our current government seems hell-bent on destroying this state, not looking out for its welfare. Or, in a similar idea, Houston, following this logic, has the right to elect a representative assembly and declare itself independent of Texas. Now, that might seem odd, a city declaring itself independent, but think about this. Houston has more people living in it now than all of the colonies together had in 1776. Or, on an even smaller scale, applying the same principle, my neighborhood of about 100 houses has the right to elect an assembly and choose to declare ourselves independent of our homeowners association. I'm also in favor of that independence. No more nasty notes about weeds growing in the cracks in my sidewalk. I would vote for that. But that's the idea of the Declaration, though. The people have the right to choose their own government, even if it means that they're throwing off a larger established government that has been over them over the past years. The Declaration, as we will see in a moment, has that idea built into it when it says that the government derives its power from the consent of the people. Here's another way of saying this. The people have the right to no longer consent to be governed. It goes back to the idea of a social contract. At any point, the people have the right to come together and say, hey, this government is no longer upholding its side of the contract. So we, the people, are out. We're out of this contract. And we're going to create a new government that will do its job of looking out for the welfare and security of us, the people. We'll come back to this idea in a future episode about the Constitution as the colonies come back together to create, as the Declaration says, guards for their future security. Now, there's a reason that governments stop doing their job of looking out for the welfare and rights of the people. Governments tend towards corruption and towards tyranny. And this, as I've said before, is because humans are sinful and they tend towards corruption and tyranny, if not restrained. Restrained by either laws or by virtuous, godly people living good moral lives. The Founding Fathers all knew that because humans are sinful, corrupt, and selfish, that governments would tend to follow this path too and become corrupt and tyrannical. And when they do, when governments become tyrannical, it's time to throw that government off. Like now. Anyway, that's why on the one hand, what the Founding Fathers were doing was important. It's an important principle and one that had never been really clearly articulated or implemented before. And here they all are, the Founding Fathers, coming together to agree to the principle and to the consequences. 
and those consequences were particularly dangerous. Liberty or death, those were the options. So now let's look at the other hand. Let's look at the document itself and the ideas that it captures. I'm gonna read through it a bit at a time and talk about the ideas that the authors were expressing and why they were and still are important. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. Okay, it's important that they started off with this word unanimous. All 13 colonies and the delegates to the Second Continental Congress all voted unanimously to adopt this declaration. So every one of the colonies was in agreement that this is what they were doing. So not just for the delegates, but in a way for all of the colonies, this is what they were doing. Again, liberty or death. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Okay, they're saying here that it has become necessary to separate from Great Britain and take, as they say, an equal station as an independent country. And then they make the point that both nature and nature's God give them this right. They're laying claim here to the idea of natural law as it was described by Cicero and to the idea of biblical law and also the ideas of many enlightenment thinkers, including Englishman John Locke. There's a whole deep set of philosophical principles behind the concept of natural law, but the basic idea is that God has set the world up in a certain orderly way and that we, as humans, we can discern these principles of order and that these things are a kind of unwritten natural law. They are the way that things ought to be. As an example, a principle of natural law that everyone can discern is that you shouldn't steal something that is someone else's. We all know that. We just sort of inherently know it. Or the idea that you should not kill someone. We all know that you should not do that. But, but these are the negative ways of expressing this, right? You should not do such and such. But the positive of you should not steal would be that people have an inherent natural right to own and possess things and to say, this is my thing. It's an inherent right. The positive of you should not kill would be that everyone has an inherent right to live and that no one should be able to take that right away from them. They have, as we will see in a second, the unalienable right to life. No one can take that away. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, you know, maybe Nicolas Cage in National Treasure is wrong. Maybe this is the phrase that's at the heart of it all. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's one sentence. This is maybe the highest thought in the whole declaration. And one of the reasons that I think it's such an important document. It's such a clear, concise summary of the idea that we all have these certain inherent unalienable rights that are given to us by God just because he's created us. 
We have the right to life, for example. That can't be taken away by anyone else. We have the right to liberty in the pursuit of happiness. By liberty, the Founding Fathers mean two things. First, that it's wrong to take away someone's freedom by force, which is exactly what the British were doing, doing things like taking away the colonists' right to trial by jury and just imprisoning them with no just cause. We'll see this a bit more in the Declaration as we read further on, as they list the things that the king has done to take away some of their liberties. But by liberty, the Founding Fathers also mean the higher principle of human self-determination. They're pointing to the idea that I mentioned earlier that the colonists have a right to get together and decide together what's best for themselves. And then they mentioned the right to the pursuit of happiness. Now this one gets misrepresented a lot nowadays. What it meant back then was that each person has the right to pursue a good life, a life that they would be contented with, not just that at any moment you should be free to do whatever crazy thing you want that makes you happy. It's about the idea of the pursuit of a good, virtuous, purposeful, and worthwhile life. If all you do in life is just to do whatever you want to and try to make yourself happy in every given moment, you won't, in the end, feel that much satisfaction. You won't feel like you're living a life that's purposeful and worth living. I think that's why there's so much angst and dissatisfaction with life nowadays. Most people aren't living lives that have much meaning, much purpose, and thus they aren't actually happy or content. What the Founding Fathers are getting at in the phrase pursuit of happiness is the idea that we all have the right to a meaningful, purposeful life, and that no one, not even the British Empire, not even the current U.S. government, has the right to take that away from anyone. Again, it's about self-determination. So. We hold these truths to be self-evident. They are saying that these rights are so obvious, so clearly inherent to all men, that everyone should see them and agree to them without much argument. And this, at this point, this is where the Declaration starts to give the justifications for the colonies declaring independence. Right? You get it? Everyone knows, they say, that all men are created equal and that they have these certain inalienable rights. It's sort of one of the proofs they're setting up to show why they have the validity of declaring independence. Everyone's created equal. We have these inherent inalienable rights. So now we have to take a look at this idea, that all men are created equal. This might be the very best, most important phrase of the whole document. What they're saying is that the people of the colonies are in no way inferior to the king or the lords of Great Britain. No social class, no social status. The Founding Fathers are making the claim, hey, we are your equals. And that's not at all how the aristocracy of Britain saw the world. It's a pretty aggressive claim, in fact, when, they, when you look at it and say, hey, we are your equals. The king, the lords, the princes, they are not better or more important than we, even though you have been treating us like subordinates. The Founding Fathers are saying, nope, we are not subordinates, we are equals. And they're laying claim to the principle here that all men are equals. This is an enlightenment ideal, but it's also a very clearly biblical ideal. And the following phrase, which mentions the Creator, implies that the biblical idea of human equality is what they have in mind. The worldview that they are espousing here is that all mankind is equal before God because we were created equally by God and that all mankind has fallen into sin and needs redemption and that we're all equal because we're all equally sinful in, and in need of God's grace. We're all equal before God. 
And because we're all equal, the king and the lords of Great Britain, who we are equal with, do not have the right to take away our God-given rights. In the end, this deeply powerful idea of equality of all men undercuts the idea of social hierarchy where the people at the top have more rights, more access, more freedoms than the people at the bottom. Everyone, everyone should have the same rights, the same equal access to the law and to freedom. And no one should presume that they have the right to take away anyone else's rights. It's the highest of all the high ideals in the Declaration. And it's one that even in the moment of it being declared, many of the signers were not living up to because many of them were owners of slaves and as such, they were not allowing these same God-given rights of equality, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to their own slaves. It's a glaring bit of hypocrisy for some of them. Now, one of the signers of the Declaration, William Whipple of New Hampshire, freed his slaves after the signing. And eventually, all of the northern states abolished slavery and freed all the slaves. But in the South, well, as we shall see, they kind of ignored this ideal and they kept many people enslaved. And this, of course, is going to divide the young nation in less than 100 years, in about fourscore and seven years, in fact. And this is exactly what Abraham Lincoln was getting at in the Gettysburg Address when he said, fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So even as the colonists were declaring their independence and justifying it with these lofty ideals and this strong argument, in many places those ideals of equality were not being lived up to. But the ideals are there in the Declaration, and this is eventually what the country does come back to and always needs to keep coming back to, the idea that all men are created equal and they're endowed by their Creator with these unalienable rights. And then the Declaration goes on. That to secure these rights, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now, this is also incredibly deep and powerful, and this is what's most relevant to us today. This phrase right here gets at what a government is supposed to be and points out what our current government is not doing. It's saying that the point of government is to secure and protect the inherent rights of all the people to protect equality, and to protect the rights to self-determination in the forms of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Government doesn't exist to control its people, to keep them in line, though that is the tendency of government to grow in that tyrannical direction as ours has done. Government, according to the Declaration of Independence, exists to protect the rights of the all men who are created equal, and to protect those men's rights to life, liberty, and self-determination, and the pursuit of a meaningful, purposeful happy life. Governments are instituted by men for the sake of protecting these inherent rights, and all governments derive their power from the consent of the governed. The idea is that government is only there because the governed, that is all the people, all, the, the all men that are created equal, have consented to this government. It's the same idea that was behind the Mayflower Compact. They got together and agreed to create for themselves a government that they would agree to follow. It's the consent of the governed. Again, this is an idea from Locke and other Enlightenment thinkers. It's also part of the idea of the social contract. And Lincoln got this idea also into the Gettysburg Address when he described it as government of the people, by the people, and for the people. 
man, I wish we could live up to that. But governments tend towards tyranny, towards corruption, towards squelching the rights and freedom of the people in favor of the privileges of those in power. So what does the declaration say about that? That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. This is the same idea that the Declaration will come back to in a moment in the phrase, it's their right, it is their duty to throw off such government. So the Declaration is going to make this point twice. But in a way, it's already built up to this key idea that when a government stops looking out for its people, and starts to become tyrannical and no longer protects the rights of the people, but rather abuses the people, the people have the right, the inherent unalienable right to get rid of that government. We still have that right. So these are some pretty amazing truths, some amazing ideas that the Declaration is putting forth, but it's also a pretty convincing argument. The logic goes like this. We hold these truths to be incredibly obvious, and then it lists these truths, right? Everyone is equal. We all have unalienable rights. Government exists to protect the unalienable rights of all men. Government exists by the consent of the governed. And the last of the list of self-evident truths is this, and it all builds up to this. When a government stops doing the job of protecting the rights of the governed, it is the right of the people to make a new government. It's a really strong, well-reasoned argument and it's argued from self-evident principles that no one can really disagree with. It's profound, it's concise, it's linear, and it's, it's beautifully written. And it's all making the point that the people have this God-given, self-evident, unalienable right to throw off a tyrannical government. And just to emphasize this point, the Declaration is going to repeat it again in the next paragraph. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shewn that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Okay, Nicolas Cage was right. That is the phrase that's at the core of it all. The Declaration is saying that governments should not be removed lightly, but when there is just cause, that is, a long series of abuses and usurpations, it's the people's right, their duty, to throw off that government and provide for themselves a new one. Usurpations, by the way, means that the government has grabbed or usurped powers that the people have not granted to it, like the government grabbing the power to listen to your cell phone. Eh, you didn't grant them that right. The Declaration is about to list the abuses and usurpations of the British government. But I just want to point out that usurping power is what government invariably does. Think about our current government, besides the cell phones. Income tax, that's a huge usurpation of power that I don't know why we put up with. The federal government controls the economy. 
the banking industry, the auto industry, the massive military industrial complex, the oil industry, and now the federal government controls the media and the tech industry. Somewhere there's some federal government computer that is scanning the text of this podcast, looking for evidence that I'm planning some kind of insurrection. And it's making a file somewhere in some federal database as my own federal government spies on me, a citizen. That to me sounds like a usurpation. Government does not have this right. But one of the inherent unalienable rights that I have and that you have as well is the right to speak freely. That right is reiterated in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, and it's put there for exactly this reason. The Founding Fathers wanted to protect the right of individuals to criticize their own government, and specifically to prevent the government, the new U.S. government that they were forming, that is, not the foreign governments, their own government. They wanted to prevent it from arresting people for criticizing the government. It's an inherent right, and the Bill of Rights exists to protect those inherent rights. But I'm getting ahead of myself here by talking about the Constitution. But this is where the Founding Fathers are going. And the idea of that is here in the Declaration of Independence when they say to provide new guards for their future security. That's what they're going to do when they create the Constitution, create new guards for their future security. But back to the Declaration. The Declaration has made the point that we, the people, have the right to throw off a tyrannical government, especially when it has shown a tendency to abuse and usurp the rights of its people. And now the Declaration is going to list the abuses and the usurpations. And I'm just going to read the list with an occasional comment on what they mean. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations. There's that usurpations again. All having indirect object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused to assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. In other words, the king has made it impossible for local governors to pass and enforce laws until the king has agreed to them. And then, even when he has been notified of the need for a new local law for the colonies, he's ignored the request. So, important laws just sat on the books without ever being enacted or enforced. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. Now, this one is huge in the mind of the colonists. The king and the parliament had abolished several colonial assemblies, which had been duly elected by the people of those colonies, and they had declared that colonial assemblies were actually illegal. And as the Declaration says, this is an important right of the people to assemble and to legislate laws for themselves. And the only people who would interfere with this right are tyrants. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness I like that phrase, 
his invasion on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. In other words, by dissolving the colonial assemblies, which he doesn't have the right to do, he's leaving the states vulnerable to attack and also to anarchy. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states. For that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. In other words, he's making it harder for new people to move to the colony and making it harder for land to be bought by those new people. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. And that is, the colonies had tried to set up their own elected judges and local courts, and in some places these had been abolished and outlawed by the king. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. That sounds a lot like the DEA and the ATF of our current federal government to me. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislature. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. In other words, he's tried to directly control the military rather than letting it be controlled by the local elected assemblies. He has combined with others, that's the parliament, to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. Here, it's saying that the king and the parliament have passed laws without any consent from the colonies that directly and negatively affected the colonies. It's the same idea as taxation without representation. You can't pass laws or taxes against us without our consent. It's a basic, inherent, unalienable right. And then the declaration lists the negative laws that were passed. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us literally quartering them in the colonists' houses without the consent of the colonial homeowner, for protecting them, that is the troops, by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, there was a naval blockade of all the colonies, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, again, taxation without representation, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, that's Canada, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and a fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. In other words, Canada is already a British military dictatorship, and that's the example of how the British government wants to treat the colonies. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. 
In other words, the king and parliament have tried to completely undo the legitimate, duly elected governments of the colonies, and they're trying, like they've done in Canada, to rule directly over the colonies, with the colonial people having no say in the way that they're ruled. And this goes back to the idea of usurpations. The king and the parliament have taken away the power of self-rule, self-determination, that the colonists have as an inherent right. And instead, the king and parliament are trying to rule by direct military force. And then the Declaration expands on this claim of military force. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is, at this time, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. Wow. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their own country and to become the executioners of their friends and brethren or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and he has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. That's a pretty damning list of things that he's done, isn't it? The colonists aren't wrong in seeing all of this as the king and parliament actively waging war against their own colony. And now the colonists in the Declaration talk about how they themselves have responded. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in our attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and our settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. So, in other words, all the colonial responses were sent back to Britain, and they were ignored, as they said, and answered only with additional injuries. Then they very clearly call the king a tyrant, and they say that he is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. That's pretty aggressive. But this last bit, where the Declaration mentions the colonial response, kind of concludes all of the argument and reasons justifying colonial independence. So then they say, after concluding all their arguments, we must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, 
in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. Wow, that's one long sentence, but it's powerful. They've just said, essentially, because of all the things we've listed above, the inherent rights, the equality, the idea that government comes from the consent of the governed, the inherent right to throw off a tyrannical government, and the list of actions that we just listed that prove the king has been a tyrant, because of all of this, we are now declaring that we are free and independent states and that all the political connections with Great Britain are dissolved. And at this point, though they are united together in this plan, each colony is declaring itself a free and independent state. That's what they're saying here. This isn't the colonies declaring that they are now a new single country called the United States. They're declaring that each of them is a free and independent state, even though they're united in declaring this. Coming together as the new country called the United States comes later as the independent colonies try to create their own new central government. But they've done the big thing. They have all together said unanimously that they are all independent of the tyranny of Great Britain. And they've published this document that justifies their right to become independent. And then they conclude with this solemn pledge. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now this ending gets kind of overlooked, but to me it's just so powerful. There's a kind of change of tone here, and even a change of audience in a sense. The rest of the document was an announcement to the world, but this last sentence is something that the delegates are saying to each other. All the signers are making a pledge here to one another and saying that they fully support this declaration and that they are relying firmly on the protection of divine providence. That means to them that they are trusting God to provide and protect them in what they see as a just cause. And then they pledge to support each other with their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And that's not an idle pledge considering what they've just done. They all know that they are committing treason and that as a result, they could be jailed, hung, and their entire estates confiscated by the British. So they are risking their lives and their fortunes. And also, I think this might be the most important part to many of them, they're also risking their sacred honor. If they win, they'll be remembered as the honorable founding fathers of a new nation. But if they lose, they will become known as traitors, scoundrels, criminals, and they would maybe not even be remembered at all. So their sacred honor was a big deal to them. The Declaration of Independence ends with this solemn and powerful agreement between all the signers that they will support each other and they will support this effort of independence with their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. 
and then they all signed the document, though that doesn't actually happen until a couple of weeks later, led by John Hancock's large, bold signature. So again, the Declaration is important on one hand because of what the Founding Fathers were doing, that is, laying claim to the right of self-determination and then declaring to the world that they were exercising that right. And it's important, on the other hand, because of the profound ideas that it so beautifully expresses, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, including the inherent rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and a meaningful life, and that governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, and that the people have the right to choose their own government, including the right to throw off an existing tyrannical government. All of these principles are still true. They are still inherent. They are still unalienable. We, the people, still have the right to choose our own government. And we still have the right to throw off a government that has become unresponsive, tyrannical, and oppressive of our inherent rights. It is our right it is our duty to throw off such a government and to provide new guards for our future security. That, my friends, is the core idea behind the Declaration of Independence. <music>